my seriousness of being a a warfighter and in the profession of arms changed right immediately um and, and i accredited to that that joint interaction being a dog handler you know the different experiences up to that point kind of prepared me to take my training more seriously and because i took the training more seriously um is why i'm still sitting here you know still go there and being being able to execute the things that i was trained to do as a dog handler What's up, everyone? Hope you are well, and thank you for tuning into the podcast. Our guest for this episode is an airman who served as a military working dog handler during Operation Iraqi Freedom. He enlisted in 1996 and attended the military working dog basic handling course at Lackland in 1999. As a handler, he conducted numerous security missions with the Air Force and quickly deployed to Iraq in 2004 to support the increasing demand for explosive detection dogs. After his deployment, he continued as an MWD handler, trainer, kennel master, and shared his experiences to shape new handlers for future missions. He continues his career leading the current and future generations of airmen to support security operations throughout the Air Force. Please allow me to introduce you to Cleophus Gallon. All right, uh, Mr. Gallon, um, I know we played a phone tag a couple of times and messages, but it's been a while to get uh, the interview done. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, to sit down with me and talk about you know your career and your time in canine especially being one of the early dog handlers during the iraq war uh, but yeah i can't thank you enough to sit down and talk to me about all your experiences um, I'm, I'm honored I'm, I'm sorry it took so long to get an interview done but you know any opportunity that i have to talk about you know share experiences and and then talk about canine and then and continue that link to it i, I enjoy it i know 100 percent um asking some current handlers around and and uh, they don't know exactly who you are so it's a really good thing because i think uh, yeah. over the years and over the time uh the old old school guys and the ones who really paved the road don't get lost but you know they just you know everyone moves on and but you are a part of that generation that really kind of set the forefront and the first ones on for that six foot leash right off of the gate um, but for those who don't know who you are or haven't worked with you in the past do you mind uh, giving us a quick brief rundown like early life, uh, how you decided to get into the military and um, how you got into canine. Cleo uh, Fitzgallon, uh, I'm originally from Miami, Florida. Uh, when I joined the Air Force, I, I knew what I wanted to do as soon as I, the recruiter popped in the VHS. Um, so by me saying pop in the VHS, I'll let you know that was a while ago. <laughs> um, so in 1990. Late 1995, I went to see a recruiter. Um, I was familiar with the military. My my aunt uh, was a veteran, and my uncle was an Army vet, and he was an MP. And the first time I saw K-9 MPs, I, I knew that that's the job I wanted. I just thought it was awesome. Um, so when the recruiter popped in, I said, stop the tape. That's what I want to do. Um, I got an opportunity to sign up for to be a security policeman, and my recruiter told me, hey, when you go to tech school, they're going to you know come over to recruit you for K-9. Just say you want to do it, and it's all good. Um, unfortunately, the very first day that they came over was the very first day that I had a heavy weapons course that I had to go to. Um, so I returned back to my dorms and everyone's telling me that, hey, K-9 was there recruiting and nobody wanted to do it. So they selected one person. Um, this one person didn't want to do it. So I tried to get them to switch uh, and they, they said no, uh, which was heartbreaking because I, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I saw my instructors and I asked them, what can I do? And they said, hey, just take care of business. And I said, all right. In my head, I don't know what that means, but I guess that means just don't get in trouble. Um, so I continued on through tech school, graduated. I went to my first base, had an awesome first supervisor, NCO, Staff Sergeant Ron who, who taught me what to do and what I needed to do. He asked me what my goals were. And I said, hey, I wanted to be K. And I kept letting everyone know this is what I want to do. Um, and I think that's uh that's important when you have a goal is to, to keep you know, your sights on it and not get deterred or, you know, sidetracked. So the supervisor helped develop me. 
um, get push me really hard, but people will look at it and go, man, your supervisor being tough on you. And I'm going, yeah, kind of, but I didn't see the vision at the time. Cause usually when you're younger, you don't get it. It's kind of like when your parents are telling kids what to do, right. they don't realize it until they get older. Um, so he, he ended up getting me an early promotion to E4. And what I didn't realize is they changed the requirements for K9. You had to be an E4 to be a dog handler after I graduated tech school. So after I got promoted, he said, now you can go be a dog handler. <laughs> and I was able to apply and, and get accepted. So in 1999, I, I, I went down to the to Lackland and uh, uh, went to dog school and graduated. So from there, I was off to Keesler Air Force Base. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. It was uh, a lot of law enforcement, a lot of action with my dog in a patrol car, you know, like, like you see on the videos or in movies. <laughs> um, but then I got certain experiences there that, that helped me you know, grow as a not only a dog handler, but as an NCO and as a leader. Um, you know, definitely taking on Secret Service, you know, missions and, and working with other services, the Navy, Marines, Army, you know, that that brings us together commonly. Um, but then I got to go to the border and work with customs to uh, search for drugs. And oh, I was nice. there three months and it was a it was a different, you know, in our training aspects in, in the military, we use small amounts and we do different types of training and we only do what we can do on the base sometimes or we may do some off base joint. This was large scale um, searches and seizures, right? So to see that and to see the capability of how one dog can impact, you know, you know, illicit narcotics coming across the border is was just, you know, opened my mind to, you know, the what these dogs are fully capable of doing, and, and as a team, what you're fully capable of doing in detecting. So right then, I knew that hey, this was the thing for me. So I I didn't desire. Uh, promotion right. at that point i wanted to continue to stay uh you know be a senior airman staff sergeant and because as long as i stay in those grades i'd be able to get those cool experiences and and, and stay with my with my dog um so I, I i was there for a while i uh got on a, a bomb dog and i got some bomb dog experience after being a drug dog um that that was awesome as as heck um yeah um responding to different things you know going to real world bomb threats and, and getting that pucker factor when you're when your dog uh, sits. Um, those kind of things kind of groom you to take training seriously. So that, again, is shaping who I am now uh, with those early experiences of, man, this is really important because I, I know that feeling of uh, we're in a real situation and the dog responds just like it did in training. Now, if I didn't train and prepare properly, th this could be the difference between success and failure of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and then I PCS to Germany, um, and then I stayed on a dog handler, and I stayed as a dog handler. And one of the things that was was different is uh, I got this dog that nobody uh, wanted because it was super mean, right? Uh, <laughs> I think the first week I couldn't even go in its kennel. Um, I go to the cage, and it was like, nope, you're not coming in. Um, and then finally, he wanted to he wanted to come out, right? And this was, uh, and I still remember his name. He's my favorite dog, and I've had a few over my 12 year span of being a dog handler. Um, it was Alan Bravo 361. Um, so Alan Bravo 361 let me come in his kennel and take him for a walk. And I think it's only because he wanted to get out. He was tired of being, <laughs> you know, sitting up. Um, so me and that dog had a lot of different experiences. Being overseas, I got to travel all over Europe, supporting the State Department and uh, any DVs that came over with the, with the Secret Service. But one day uh, I get a call and it was, "Hey, you're gonna you're gonna depart." In, in two days for a TDY. And I was thinking to myself, hey, it wasn't my turn because we had a, a fairly large kennel and I knew I just came off a rotation fairly recently. And so I come in to the building and my commander, my my senior enlisted leader, my captain and my the, the senior match sergeant were all sitting at the table. And I look at them and they're like, hey, uh, have a seat. And I'm thinking to myself, oh man, what's going on? Yeah, young staff sergeants thinking, what did I do? All right. So um, they tell me, hey, you're going to be deploying in two days. Um, you're not going to get any pre-deployment training. It's just you and your dog and you're going to be with Marines. What? <laughs> I'm in the Air Force. So what do you mean I'm going to be with Marines? Right. And they're like, no, you're, you're going to be with Marines. And uh, yeah, you're going to be going to um, Iraq. And I'm like, well, where in Iraq? And they're like, well, we don't think it'll we don't think it'll be Fallujah. And at that time, it was April of 2004. Um, and it, Fallujah was very heavy in the news, right? So that don't think it will be Fallujah. I was like, oh, okay, that, well, we'll we'll see what happens, right? So I get my get ready, you know, I leave in in two days. 
Um, I land in uh, Al-Assad, um, Iraq, and I'm there with a, a few, uh, well, I'm there with a lot of Marines, but uh, eight, 10 other uh, Air Force handlers, right? We all come together from different places. What was happening was the Marines were short at the time of dog handlers and they needed more support. So the Air Force said, hey, we, we'll send you 12, 12 teams. So we get there, we're in a tent, you know, not living that 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 Air Force life that we're used to. Right. Um, and we meet our uh, Air, uh, Marine compadres. Um, and I can tell you from that point on, my life, my 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 standards, my seriousness of being a a warfighter and in the profession of arms changed right immediately. Um, and, and I accredit it to that, that joint interaction, being a dog handler, you know, the different experiences up to that point kind of prepared me to take my training more seriously. And because I took the training more seriously um, is why I'm still sitting here, you know, still go there and being, being able to execute the things that I was trained to do as a dog handler coming up as a young handler and not taking for granted the basics of anything. Um, so in short, without getting into the details yet about any of the things, you know, those, that was the, my progression as a dog. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you definitely covered everything from, uh, when you got to Lackland, you said that it was around 1999 It's when you got out of tech school, went well, to Lackland. No. So, um, I, I, I enlisted in 1996. I had to wait three years before I could be a dog handler. Um, so in 1996 is when I know I was told, hey, I missed I missed the opportunity because the uh, the recruiters or the guys from the dog show came over and I wasn't there. I was at a heavy weapons course. Um, and it wasn't until 1999 that I can get back because that's when I promoted to E4. Gotcha. Um, and I just happened to do it earlier than I was projected. So right. that allowed me to get get to K9 as soon as I possibly could, which was uh, which was great for me. Yeah, that's still pretty good. Um, I like how there's a couple of things that you mentioned where. I mean, it was just in a short time frame because in that area, like you said, like April 2004, you know, Fallujah was still a hot topic in the news. And then I like to touch on that right before that because, uh, you know, how they sat you down in the office. They taught you like, hey, this is what's going on. You're probably going to go to deployment. Was there any kind of word prior to that or other dog handlers deploying from the Air Force or was were you guys kind of that? That was kind of like news no no up. idea no idea <laughs> yeah it was no idea that we that we were going to be going there right right because we were all, we were deploying as well but it wasn't to there we we're going to places like buka and and other locations but that was specifically you know hot in the news so everybody was you know it was tense when it, talking about that region but it was just known as a as a as a marine camp right. so it wasn't something that we were expecting because we we're there we're air force we're gonna go to our air base sure um, so t we were totally caught off guard. It was a last minute thing. And when they called me, they had just found out and they were trying to give me as much time to prepare because I only had two days. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So you kind of didn't get any information, uh, how no, to prepare, but had no idea. looking at where, where you were at and just doing like, you know, the basic, um, you know, the normal, you know, validations and certifications and stuff like that. Do you feel did you, how, how were you, what was your mindset? Like, did you feel ready or like, Oh, I'm excited or. It's like this is going to be new and challenging and ready for it, whatever comes up. Well, and and that's what that's what I was getting at with the hey, it wasn't my turn. Right. Um, the dog I had was the best dog in that kennel. Right. Okay. We had a we had a ten dog kennel. Um, he was he was a great dog. Like, uh, it, it, I knew it wasn't my turn, but I wasn't concerned because I had I had the dog. Um, and I knew that if anybody can, you know, you know, step up to the task, it was, I, I just got to follow that, this dude's lead and, and trust him. <laughs> um, so I, I was, I was confident, um, but it was unknown. So landing at, in, in Al-Assad, it was uh, unknown of what would be going on. And then to be told, Hey, you're, you're, you're all not going to stay together Air Force. We're going to disperse you across the country and four of you have to go to Fallujah. <laughs> Um, and I'm not going to lie to you, we, we didn't just go, who's going to go. We pulled out a deck of cards and we, we, we pulled cards oh, to see who got the highest card. Right. And, and this is a true story. I, I actually, it was two, two cards, two guys left me and another guy and he pulled the queen and I was like, well, you got the queen. I'm sure he's going to be going. And I, and I pulled out an ace. So <laughs> I, I was the last, last guy to, to say, Hey, get ready, get your stuff together. You're going to be getting on the helo and we're going to from outside to, to Fallujah. Nice. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Usually, like, they get 
whoever that kennel master is or we'll rack and stack them and you guys just straight pull out the cards and luck of the yeah we, we were all life. we were all staff sergeants we were we were all staff sergeants um and we were all from different places so we hadn't established a kennel um it, it was just us in a tent and in our dogs right and and it was it wasn't organized like a base or a, right. a place should be um so it was more so hey once you get to where we're going to disperse you then you'll be organized with the, the hierarchies and everything but you know you got you know 10 staff sergeants looking at each other like who's who's going who's in charge we didn't have time to pull out uh dates or ranks and everything so we said hey simple let's just plot these cards and let chance send us where we're going to go right um so when you mentioned like as soon as you got there um and actually like meeting up with some of the marines and it, and it kind of brought to kind of how you wanted to take things more serious or just the kind of the atmosphere was it their kind of demeanor or just their just the fact that they've been there for a little bit like what what really pushed you in that direction it's like oh man like this is really getting really real I, I think it was it was already there um based on the climate and the time you know we were we were at war so uh, we didn't we didn't t not take it seriously but it just it was we are we are the air force we're going to support marines and we want to show them that we're fully capable right we all go to the same tech school but we want to show them we're, we're just as capable to do things they're going to ask us to do as a dog handler you know, we, right. we weren't trying to be marines we're just making sure that they know hey we're we're qualified dog handlers mps and we can do some things as well so that that seriousness as far as profession of arms but also air force pride we were proud of you know our service and then being able to to do our part in the, in that region um was you know i think on everybody's mind like if all of our guys were were ready to to go to wherever we had to go to but we were going to do our part awesome and then when in your first few weeks typically um everyone nowadays like i mean do you try to get the dogs and like the handlers like two weeks before you know they start really getting pushed outside the wire or acclimation did you notice any of the I know you were all separate from different bases, but did you guys know any like any issues with the dogs um, having trouble like acclimatizing or I'm sorry, acclimating to the environment at all? Um, not initially. I think once we got settled um, and got them, you know, settled into the kennel, um, it, it it wasn't two weeks. I know we, we, right. we moved a little faster than that. Um, but one thing that we noticed along the time that we were there was the dogs' reactions to different things. Um, you know, some teams had to take on more outside the wire because some dogs uh, didn't react well to explos explosions and, and gunfire, right? So, right? so once we realized who, you know, but it, it, it's a trial and error. It's a, a dog team going out and the handler coming back going, hey, man, my dog did this, you know, and then the, the trainer and the kennel master, you know, I, I was fortunate to fill the kennel master role. I would have to sit down and talk and, and, and we'd go over those considerations. And then we just identified who had the stronger set of dogs. Um, and was that team that can support those outside and then, you know, who can be the ones at the ECPs and, and remain at the base. Um, so we divvied up, we did end up divvying up the missions, but it was after trial and error of, hey, I went outside the wire and there was gunfire and my dog stopped, you know, working, froze up or, you know, it was, it was a couple of dogs that really were traumatized by, you know, the, the loud explosions because it's just not something that they dealt with in preparation and, and then at point probably in their entire life. Um, so um, it was something that could not be determined back from the guys who came stateside or from other bases. It's something that they had to figure out there. But then also that's good information for those handlers to take back in preparation. For me, you know, all my handlers at, at, in Germany where I was, I was bringing back the information and sharing so that, that we can prepare and training so that that didn't happen to them once they got down range because deployments were steady. Right. You know, as soon as I got back, we were sending more out the door. So. And it was a steady rotation, so it was imperative that we learn from, you know, those folks. And, and there would be times where we'd even communicate, you know, while we were there back to our home stations. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I think that the flow of communication and information from the real experience and prepping the next guys that are coming out is something that Canine does really well. And sometimes they, there's some shortfalls, but especially in that time, like you yeah. said, it was consistent. There were they you knew that someone was going to come from the kennels back out here to replace these dog teams um yeah as soon as you you got there do you mind sharing anything where um you felt like you gained overall confidence in your dog and your abilities as a dog team whether it's outside the wire or anytime like you felt validated as a team and showed your capability to your that supporting unit uh yeah uh 
let me see. Uh, there was a time where we were we were attached to a. I even remember the the unit RCT seven. Um, and we would go outside the wire, and uh, so it was a point where they would want me to sweep the road, and 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 I was like, all right, how do I do this on a six foot lead? Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is difficult. So we started training internally. Uh, you know, the Marine handlers and the Air Force handlers started training with hand and arm signals with our dogs off leash, you know, zigzagging them across the road. And we, we did it hoping that it would work once we got outside the wire in the real world. And then there's those other external factors, loose dogs, people, <laughs> noises, all kinds yeah. of things that can distract them. And the last thing you want is a handler is your dog to take off running, right? Um, so we were able to execute that training, do it successfully, and I got to apply it. Uh, in support, which was beneficial, right? Because I can get him further up the road when we have patrols and things that were coming behind us to clear it and then bring them back to me as opposed to to being right up on top of them, which is not a not a good look when you're when you're in that environment. Right. No, that's good. Uh, definitely. I mean, you're expanding the capability of what everyone knows because everyone thinks the dog's yeah. always on leash. And then if you can work him off leash to get the standoff distance and then and it's successful. I mean, that breathes confidence in yourself and also that team behind you. So that's Absolutely. awesome. That's Absolutely. really good. Did you see any other uh, changes in like, you know, I guess like employment methods other than like off leash or uh, with like a patrol dog or did everyone try to get to that off leash standard or was it just, you know, kind of working on longer leads or just dealing with what was that like in front of them? We, we consistently worked on uh, with longer leads, but everybody was working to that standard of having their, having right. their dogs off leash. Um, just you, we, uh, incorporate ourselves with EOD and then utilizing things that they had confiscated the roadside IEDs that they, they diffuse, you know, getting the visuals of what to look for helped us too. Right. So that builds your confidence. You know, I'm searching, I'm relying on my dog to alert and, and I'm looking for unusuals, but what does unusual look like? Well, they were showing us what unusual looked like. Um, so we got to see it. Um, got to train with them. Um, so that even our dogs can know that, hey, this is a thing, but I, I'm alerting on this thing, you know, not distracted by it. So you know, we integrated with EOD a lot um, to to help make us more proficient as we as we continue to do things outside of the wire. No, it's a, that's a very good point. Um, it's part of uh, understanding your your training requirements when you get down there to maintain the capability and sustain, you know, detection and linking up with EOD and trying to source that local odor finding what's yeah. relevant in the area. I think it's really important for uh, enemy handler going to anywhere uh, right now, especially if it's a kinetic environment, to understand the, the AO as much as possible. And I think that was very apparent back then. And those are things where uh, lessons learned like that always trickle down. You know, I mean, it's always something that's yeah. going to stick around with every generation. Um, and if you're a handler that goes into your specific work environment, you're not doing it, they're probably in the wrong. They should do some yeah. research and yeah. uh, check yeah. it out. Now, for I know that during that time frame, um, the Marine Corps was expanding capabilities, and they had some, you know, getting into the off-leash SSDs and things like that. Uh, I don't, I don't know if by that time you would ever run into anybody in 2004. But did you ever work any other capabilities? It's just pets at that point. No, um, that, that that was it. It was uh, it was, it was a environment where. It, it was, you know, the Marines were there for a long time and they were due to rotate, right? So we were the gap in between. So it was at one point where we took over the, the missions and that wasn't, you know, explained to us or projected what was supposed to happen. But it was like, hey, you guys got to fill these roles until, you know, we get these other Marine handlers up and running. And then it was us, you know, prepping them, you know, at, like we were prepped. So right. it was that that was a pretty cool experience to be able to say, you know, we came we came into these roles as uh, just a, as supposedly a support element. We're going to work just the base, and we started expanding what we were doing. Um, but we didn't question it. We we knew we were capable of doing it. But then being able to train the marine handlers as to hey, this is what to look for. This is what we've seen. These are the experiences. And then we integrated it, and we all were were a part of that. Was uh, was uh, was pretty cool. That's good. Do you do you feel that the the marines were receptive? I mean, coming from obviously like Air Force, but you guys have been there. Do you feel like the turnover, like all the handlers were receptive of the information and uh, wanted to take it? Absolutely. I mean, you have your, your personalities, you know, right, in, yeah. in K-9, you have those uh, some alphas and competitiveness with uh, you know, whose dog is better. But um, 
there was a there definitely was a bond there um and a brotherhood and it was it was the fact that we were dog handlers that that you know it's different when you you show up on a, a marine corps base or air force base and you're a different service and you're just you just hey that's that marine that's that that uh sailor or soldier right but when you're a dog handler you're a dog handler it's, it's yeah. just whether you're marine army or whatever they hey there was a dog handler so um we spoke the same language when it came to dog handling and uh as the air force we we were on their camp so we learned their language and you know what it meant and how to address and those different things that's good um and in the early stages i know like as the war progressed and then you know you've been moving into afghanistan um depending on the mission set dog handlers can be outside the wire for a long period of time and even then the expeditionary kennels didn't really come up and so i know around that time frame i mean was majority of the dog like with you guys nonstop 24 7 you guys didn't really have a, a kennel situated so you have to make your own or is it a always a very kennel or you just kind of living where everybody else was living no we actually um I, i'll share this and the marines probably won't like it after i, I shared but <laughs> um uh, we realized that there was not a real location for us so we we saw this facility and it had uh, rooms in it and we said, man, if we can get this building right here, we can, you know, stay, our dogs is to stay with us till we get the kennels up and running. Yeah. Um, so we ended up putting a sign on the door that said Air Force Detachment. And and, <laughs> and it was a car. It was cardboard. It was with a Sharpie and nobody questioned it. So um, we ended up keeping it the entire time we were there. And everybody walked by and was like, oh, that's the Air Force Detachment. And nobody said anything about us having our rooms and uh, a, a dog in a room. Nice. <laughs> so that was that was pretty funny. We ended up, you know, telling them after we we left, like, hey, we, we weren't the detachment. We probably should not have been uh, in a room by ourselves. But that was K nine being uh, creative and make sure we we're taken care of. Right. Um. And and we we were able to get the space for our dogs that we needed. That's good. Out of for for that time and then you know for this deployment with uh. You said it was Allen Bravo three six one. Yes. Right. Uh, how was, how do you feel like you and your dog bonded throughout the deployment? Would you think like it was definitely, um, a memorable experience or was it just too much workload or how do you feel? Do you want to talk about like how, you know, building the bond and trusting your dog continuation throughout the deployment stuff and not losing confidence in him? Oh man, it was, it was definitely a, uh, you know, it's important to have that bond with your dog because there's, there's those days where you get mentally drained. And that's the that's the thing that's gonna, you know, make get you through it, right? So when you're talking about long hours and 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 where we would be with our dogs, you know, there was times where I, I was outside of the wire for for over a day, you know, and I and it's my dog with me, and it's a very kennel, and I'm not gonna leave him in a very kennel, right? Um, so he's he's there with me, you know, and on outside, you know, sitting on the laying on the ground or <laughs> sitting in the the Humvee, um, but. That's the thing that keeps your spirits up. But what I noticed is it kept a lot of the the Marines that we were supporting spirits up because they had that sense of, hey, that's a dog. Like back home, and they they always wanted to, it, it broke that that barrier that 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 defense mechanism that would be up potentially because right. they wanted to come over and talk about K nine and talk about the the dog and what it can do and you know they have a dog back home and you know the different training things. So it was it built relationships to have my dog with me. But it definitely helped me when I was going when it got tough, and I was getting mentally drained. He was definitely the the thing to you know that it, it's something where you can look in your dog's eyes and they're telling you something, and, right. and and that happened a lot there where he would you know I'm looking at him, he's looking at me, um and and I'm like all right we we got this we got this we're gonna get back and we're gonna enjoy a a good meal when we get back I'm gonna take a good shot you know what I mean and the dog's <laughs> yeah. like we're gonna get through this don't worry. And so I, I was I was more confident because I saw the confidence in my dog, whether it was the patrol side that he had to do or the explosive detection. Like, you know, when your dog's confident and on point when they're searching. Um, so I always felt confident when Alan was searching. That's good. Um, I noticed that you said mentioned like the patrol side and uh, part of in Mike's uh, story. And he's the one who, who mentioned you and put us in touch uh, where he, he literally had a standoff, almost had a live bite on one of his first missions and everything like that. Is there anything mm-hmm. that, um, that you kind of caught you off guard and, um, anywhere like, you know, you could have potentially got a live bite or did you get a live bite at all for using the patrol capability? 
so I, 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 I tell this story and sometimes people uh, look at me and they're like, what? And, and so I, I remember one of me and one of my uh, good Air Force handler friends, he's, uh, he's retired right now. Um, uh, Mass Sergeant retired, Stephen Hudson. But uh, we get woken up by our, by our, uh, our regional kennel master, the gunny. And he's like, hey, get your dog, get your gun, get your shit, let's go. <laughs> that's how he talked, right? Yeah. So I was like, uh, okay. So he doesn't tell us where we're going and we get to the, uh, the, the CP and he's like, all right, need you to, we're going to go to this area over here. Gonna, you guys got to do a sweep, make sure there's no personnel. I'm like, where are, you, where are we going? I have never seen this place. What I didn't realize is we were, someone was trying to get into the camp through underground tunnels and he wanted us to go in with our dog, with oh, wow. my dog and flush him out. Um, and man, when I tell you that it's unbelievable, the, the, the ants farm that I was in, uh, as far as you go into a room, it goes to a door, there's more rooms, more doors, more hallways, and it just, it was ever expanding and dark. Um, so we had glow sticks, flashlights, our guns, and, and my dog, and, and Hudson was my spotter. And it got to one point where I can, we can hear voices and see a little uh, shadowy, shadowy figures. Um, so I was like, all right, got to let him go. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I release him, you know, and he's gone. Like he, he was for that action. He was about that life. Uh, and, and we hear the run in, hear the, you know, voices get louder. Um, so me and Alan, I mean, uh, me and Hudson are, you know, pursuing, you know, cautiously because there's so many rooms to, to pass. Right. And then it gets quiet and I'm like, I, I don't hear anything. And he's like, I don't hear anything either. And so we're, we're, we're to a certain point where we know we're really, really far from where we entered and we may not, be able to find our way back um and it was like i'm, I'm calling my dog and i'm not trying to do it loud and trying to be tact you know tactical and no reply i don't hear anything the dog isn't here and he's like man we got to go back i'm like i can't leave my dog down here he's <laughs> like we got to go back I, he's like i'm unsure that where we are right now right um so i'm like all right you, you start you start going back and i'm gonna i'm gonna come i'm gonna come up see if i can get him to come back to me and so I'm calling and I'm, you know, you know, high pitch voice. I'm doing all the stuff they teach me and, and taught me in the adult school. Nobody, nobody. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm giving them my best, right? Nothing. So I turn around, I start to, uh, to walk back. And as I turn around and start to walk back, I, I feel him run, like brush up against my leg. And he was right back at me. He was silent as I don't want. That's the first time I've never heard my dog at, at all. Right. But he ran back to me. Um, so we were able to say, hey, we dropped some gold sticks and say, hey, this is where we stopped at. Um, and then they sent some other guys down um, to, to you know, secure off the area. But that was the one time that I felt extremely uh, nervous about my dog and, and being off leash. There was other times where, you know, we're utilizing the dogs to kick in the door and I'm going in first to clear the facility and done that. Right. And heart racing, obviously, adrenaline pumping. But that time right there was the time where I, I thought man, I, I might've lost my dog or my, something going to happen. And I, it wasn't a, it wasn't a fear of being scared. It was a fear that I, I'm going to lose my buddy and it's my fault or I didn't do everything that I could do. So right. um, definitely had some good experiences and, and memories and, you know, you tell people you were searching tunnels and they're like, what? And I'm like, I can't even describe to you what it looked like and how, how, it, how it felt to think you're clearing, but knowing that you can't clear it all. Right. Yeah, it's just definitely the the unknown, and then also probably the first time you've ever seen that. It's a shame, but I mean, it's it's in real life. You didn't get the training opportunity ahead of time. You know, trying to get the continuous yeah. exposure for the dog and the different yeah. situations for yourself. Like this is where you guys went from a straight security mission, you know, supporting the base and other you know security missions of, abroad. But then now you're in combat, and this is a totally yeah. different environment. So yeah. I can definitely. Uh, understand the how that is a little unnerving and adrenaline pumps. Um, with that, like how long how long was that deployment for for you going to uh, Iraq? From April to November of two thousand four. That's a good good amount of time. Did you um, did you ever get a chance to go back, or is it once? No, I, I tell you what, man. When I got back from there, um, there was so much that happened, and so many, you know terrible experiences and but you know experiences to learn um, when I got back 
my, you know, my base commander who ended up being our, our the chief of staff of the Air Force later on in his career, um, asked me to, you know, tell the, you know, that I have any good stories. And I, and I told one, um, and it, it wasn't a good, like, funny, ha-ha story. It was a story. Right. Um, he looked at my commander and said, um, you know, he needs to get some time off. And the commander's like, yeah, he gets his two weeks R&R. And, and I ended up with, let's just say, I ended up with 40 days off. Right. Um, because we didn't have the reintegration like they had, you know, stopping Ramstein and get, you know, reintegrated before you get sent home. Literally, man, I was in Iraq. I, I landed, I was at Al-Assad, and I landed in Germany uh, three, four hours later. So I went three, four hours later from being in that environment to being back home. Yeah. Um, so they realized that that was not the way to do business. And um, it, it it should be a little different as far as the reintegration. Right. No, I think um, definitely that, that time uh, everyone was learning how to reintegrate, you know, all the service members from coming from that kind of connect environment and even then like there were longer deployments you know way more than six months up to a year maybe even more sometimes uh it's definitely yeah we they had us nervous man the marines actually told us they're gonna keep us a year oh man i was like uh that's that's not possible we're in the air force you cannot keep us a year (laughs) and so i i ended up uh you know just verifying i had to call our uh our centaf and and just so happened the command chief there the senior enlisted for centaf was one of my old supervisors and he he first off had to realize where we were and then they could start working to get it replaced. Because like I said, remember we started in outside and that's where we were supposed to be and right. we got farmed out. So it was trying to track us down. And then that, and then at that time it was, you know, trying to track us down through another service, which was very difficult. Right. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't have all the cat cards and lines yeah, and nope. all that set up. You're kind of hitchhiking yep. and it's like, Hey, have you yep, seen a dog exactly. around? hitchhiking and you know jumping on helos and trying to catch a ride that's how we got back literally in november um it was we don't know if we're going to be able to get you uh air flight or a c-17 is going to be at alisab but that's going to be the last time for you know a week or two and i'm like oh man i don't want to stay another week or two our release already here you know so we actually had to hitchhike to the helo pad we had to you know you know make our way to try to fit onto a chopper we get on the chopper and as you know, they're telling us like, yeah, you're never going to make it back. It's going to be gone by the time you get there. Um, and as we're, we're flying in Al-Assad, I look out the window and I see the tail of a C-17. It's dark and it's supposed to be gone. Um, and they tell us to hurry up and get off. You know, the tail's open. It's a bunch of Marines on board. Um, and I, I, the C-17 is my favorite aircraft because that Lieutenant Colonel pilot came out and said, oh, man, once I heard we had some airmen in, um, in route, I, I wasn't going to leave you. So I gave him a big hug and we got on the plane, man. And then, you know, three, four hours later, I was in uh, Germany. So that's awesome. Very, but you had to hitchhike to figure that out. You know, it's not the right. coordinated travel that you're, that you're used to. Exactly. So uh, coming out of Germany and then after uh, reintegration and then how was life getting back to the kennels? And um, did you have a chance to kind of spin up the, the next dog handlers? Was there a rotation going back out? Was there any lessons learned that you felt were really important that you wanted to pass on to future handlers coming out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, once I reintegrated, you know, I, I started, I worked Allen for a little bit longer and then I got moved up to be the trainer. Um, and then I was like, all right, I, I, I got a lot of experience as far as the deployed environment to share. Um, and there's a, there are a few of my handlers today that reached out or reach out and say, man, you, the, the things that I learned, uh, it helped me and my dog team downrange. Um, and it's specifically, you know, you're talking about IV detection and VBEDs and things like that. The stuff that you normally didn't train for at home station, but right. you should train for and be prepared for. And early on back then, it was it was figuring it out. Um, so being able to integrate again, making those connections with EOD downrange was like, all right, let me make these connections here because they're deploying too. Right. And they'll be able to do those similar things here to, to prepare our handlers, you know, and the biggest one for us was, you know, that off-leash training, you know, for our dogs um, there at home station before they got downrange so that they were confident and prepared once they got there. Um, so that knowledge of, and moving into the training role, I, I didn't think it was going to be fun moving from my dog, my favorite dog, and, and being a trainer, but it was pretty awesome seeing the progress of other dog teams. Um, or trying, you know, trying to fix problems and, and seeing a handler grow as a in, in their knowledge. 
So that that transition was a was a fun transition. Right. That's good. How many? I guess uh, I know like the the Air Force kind of sends out individual you know deployment sometimes. Um, the next rotation from your kennels was it one or dog handler? Or was it like two? Or is it a no? We one? no. So we have four that were always ready to go. Okay. Um, I, we we sent three or four. I don't. I, I think Alan was the fourth. He actually had to go right back out again. Um, but he he was the last one of that four rotation. So they sw- they switched into a new handler, got them certified, and then um, he rotated back out again. So that that dog had that dog had did three tours in Iraq. So he was a he was a vet that I was close to adopting them. Um, but he ended up having this this spinal disorder and you know lost the ability to use the back of his legs. But right. I, you know, I, I figured I wanted to give him a a great you know retirement, and I was hoping to do that. That's that's awesome. Um, is it now looking back and how your the deployment went and then the training that you had beforehand? Is there anything that you wish that you would have had more exposure on to help you? perform a little better that you would want other handlers to do the same way? I think now, well, I think now there's a, uh, a better uh, interoperability between the services. So joint service training, just understanding what, you know, other services are doing and how, how they do things. Right. That was a, a lot of us, this is language and translation. It's like going to a foreign country and not speaking the language and trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Um, and I think now with so many, you know, that joint mindset, joint training that we have, um, our handlers will be better equipped um, than they were when I when I was deploying as a handler because it was just trying to understand terminology or the way to do business or who 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 can provide what support or service for us. Um, but as far as like, like I said, you know, we all go to the same dog school and we speak that same canine language, so that made it. Um, a, a smooth transition internally amongst you know marine handlers and air force handlers that that's good i think um i think i, I know i hear stories a lot and I imagine like some of the air force bases that are in close proximity they'll the train the canine section will train together you know and um occasionally like there'll be subject matter expert exchanges on the east coast and west coast but i think mm-hmm. it's good for the trainers to to reach out even the handlers to see what other handlers are doing, you know, like what works yeah. for them and um, everyone gets in their, their one way, but there's a million different ways to skin the cat. And in, Absolutely. The, end, in the end, we're all doing the same mission um, and we're looking for the same stuff, you know, whether it's a bomb yeah. or, or drugs and seeing how uh, little tips and tricks can help everybody perform. Um, now transitioning into the, your trainer role and like assuming maybe like a kennel master role. Yeah. Um, what kind of, and you said like even like uh, out of your experiences up until then, how did that shape like kind of like your leadership, your your viewpoint on like leadership and prepping, you know, junior airmen for not just like canine, but just in general for, for the security forces mission? Wow. I mean, again, you know, you get tasked to deploy and, and, and go to war in, in two days. Right. Um, so if you have not prepared up until that point, you're, you're going to fail. Um, so I was fortunate to have those leaders that pre- ensure that I was prepared and I, and I committed to the training and preparation. And I, I won't say I took it as seriously as I did once I did that, but right. I took it seriously enough um, to be to to be successful in what was being asked. Of me. Um, so my my uh, focus on training became so much more important after I got back. I mean, it was so many things that I was like, man, if I did this, I could have been a little more effective, right? I didn't just want to be able to say, oh yeah, I executed and nobody died and it was all good. No, I was like, how can we have been more more effective? We could have found more things or did more things or worked a little longer or, uh, you know, I could read my dog better when I was unsure, you know, just different things, right? So if you if you focus on training, um, I think there there becomes that moment where if you're faced with something that you're unsure with, you won't freeze up. You'll, you'll fall back on your training. You'll, you'll, your body is, I call it that, you know, everybody knows that muscle memory. Like, all right, my body knows to, to, to do this thing because I've done it, right? And, I, and it, that freeze can be the difference between, you know, somebody living or somebody dying, right? Um, so I always, that was the first time, and I, my mom asked me why I was excited when I got back. Um, and I said to her, I had been practicing my entire career and I went to the Super Bowl and won. 
And she was like, what? I'm like, I, I went to war and got to use all the things that I've been practicing, like every single thing, things that I did in tech school, things that I did as an airman before I became a dog handler, you know, because I, they, and they needed that, the, you know, the SP, the security forces side of what I was doing as well. And then all the things I learned as a dog handler, you know, I got to use those and I see that they work. So, you know, sometimes we go through training and then we don't experience utilizing those things. Sometimes folks go, oh, man, why are we doing this? This is the basics. So this is too easy. Well, when you see how effective they are, you got to be brilliant at the basics. You should fine tune your skills so that you you're not looking to do that when you need to when you need to actually execute it. So being brilliant at the basics matters. And I told my mom, it's like winning the Super Bowl. I got to, you know, play in the game and and run routes and and, and catch passes and, and, and touchdowns because I, you know, the touchdown meaning everybody made it back. Yeah, that's no, a, it's a good point. And I like what you said, like just brilliant and the basics, you know, like that brilliance right there. It's like exactly what's being asked of you. If you're being uh, sent out for, you know, dog sport, make sure that you can perform what you're saying and then just do that consistently. And even uh, just basic, you know, I mean, everyone goes through like some sort of basic military training and then also advanced training for advanced infantry, but at least everyone's like his basic soldiering skills, you know, how to survive yeah. in somewhat of combat environment. And I think uh, those things are, you know, it's a very good point uh, to make. Um, and then now with the, like progressing into your career and you're going through the ranks. Um, and I know you mentioned that a lot, do you feel that if you didn't go canine, um, maybe it would have changed like how your career progressed or like your leadership perspectives, or do you feel like that was very significant or, um, do you think it would have gone a different way if you didn't go that route? No, I'll definitely say canine shaped who I am. Um, uh, once I wasn't able to be a dog handler anymore, you know, I, you know, promoted myself out of canine, um, I became I began to focus on airmen and making sure that they were trained, whether they were a dog handler or not. But surprisingly, a lot of our, you know, our security forces airmen, you know, had desires to be canine. So they looked at it as an opportunity to ask someone who's experienced those things. So I always got to continue to, you know, share knowledge on it. And then I got to a point where the canine section fell under me. I was their superintendent. So that was awesome to to be able to integrate sometimes. And what I what I did is I tried not to you know, be the the canine guy that's just always, you know, focused on canine and, and telling people how to do it. So I cut myself off intentionally right. so that I can give them the proper oversight as a superintendent. Um, but I, I always stayed engaged and then when they would invite me out for training or when I would go out and observe their, you know, their validations and certifications, and, you know, they'd ask me for some input that, you know, share some things, you know, I know things are different from when I was an airman coming up, but, you know, that, you know, you can learn from history, right? So you know, I share some things, some stories, some pointers or what I see. And sometimes that was beneficial to them because they weren't looking at it through the same lens that I was looking at it. But right. the a rewarding piece is being able to get the support and things that K-9 needs when you're their superintendent, right? So when they're coming, explaining you why they need a certain piece of equipment or a certain type of, you know, TDY for training, they don't have to explain too hard because I totally get it, right? right? So, that, you know, those kennel masters who, who worked for me were, were pretty excited whenever they would come in the office and they'd say, hey, we were looking to do this. And I'm like, all right, got it. And they're like, wow, this is a lot easier than when I didn't have someone who was K-9 and trying to explain to them the importance of why. Um, but I was like, no, man, I, I 100 percent understand why it's important for you and your handlers to be prepared because you don't know. And I always say this to people to this day. You don't know when you're going to get that two day call. And that's referencing my two day call. Right. No, that's a good point. And then. Uh... Yeah, I think everyone's been on that on both ends of that realm where you're that kennel master going up up the chain asking for support and they're either on board or they're not. And it helps when they're on board and they understand and or actually care uh, to hear the rhyme and reason why you need that specific piece of gear yeah. or that support or why we need this money for TDY or to go TAD and train somewhere. Uh, but that's, that's, uh, no, that's really important to be able to help facilitate their training. And like you said, like not interjecting yeah. You know, tell them, hey, you need to do everything this exact way, but yeah. help them learn, you know, give them tips and tricks. And yeah. I think that's how I've kind of realized like these last few years, uh, filling those trainer roles. It's like, you know, we can't, sometimes you have a tendency to overwhelm them with all the information. You got to get it out there. Yeah. But sometimes, hey, they're going to learn just like you learned, you know, getting a little bit yeah. of information, adjust, and sometimes just failing and figuring it out. And it's like, yeah. yep, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to make that environment for you. That way you can experience this and you make your own yep. determination. So yeah, that's really, uh, that's good. Um, uh, something else I wanted to touch on, um, ever since, uh, Mike, uh, mentioned you and then, um, yeah, I know you were, you know, doing a, a big move for you. Um, and then I started following you on, on Facebook and yeah, I'm not the best on social media, but every now and then I get on there and I don't know why, if you want to explain what the different breed is, but I'm, I'm curious to see kind of like the meaning behind it and how, um, what is this, the, the different breed saying, um, that you, <laughs> that you share on Facebook. So it was, uh, it was a way for me, one, to stay connected as a dog handler, um, in, in some way, right. Um, currently I, I'm a senior enlisted leader in a unit. So, you know, my, my dog handling days are long done. Right. And, and I'm actually in a unit that overseas, we don't have a canine section. Um, but I always felt like canine was elite. That's what I said. Canine was elite. They're, they're elite, right? They're, they're a different breed of, of, of a military member. Um, but then I started recognizing that there, there could be different breeds of, of service members um, who are willing to, you know, do things outside of the norm. That means, you know, as far as being um, superior at taking care of people, superior in executing the mission, um, just be different and not different, but consistent and not afraid of, you know, the the pushback of what comes from support and leading, you know, making those tough decisions that some people were scared to make because they're like, oh man, if I make this decision, it'll affect my promotion if I'm, you know, do this. So if I speak up, you know, when it, when I should speak up, you know, doing what's right when you should be right. Right. Um, so I tell I tell people all the time that they should, um, you know, have more. Well, I tell them what my four leadership principles are um, and they are discipline, accountability, proactivity and professionalism. And when I see someone who executes all those things, then I, then I say they're a different breed. Right. Discipline on and off duty, how they carry themselves. You know, accountability, holding others accountable, holding, holding themselves accountable, um, proactivity, um, obviously being proactive in training, preparation, uh, proactive in executing, you know, taking care of business, and then the professionalism. We are a profession of arms. I don't mean professionalism while we're just wearing our uniform, but a profession of arms. You know, if we say we're the top military in the in the world, then we got to perform and prepare and be professional like we are as well. No, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I think those key principles uh, are something that any, anybody can benefit from and especially yeah. in their in their in the military uh, that should be the the core principles to follow yeah. uh, but it's interesting and yeah I'll, every time I you know flip on I see see that and like I was just really curious about it and so to essentially come up, coming up with a little bit of a brand to kind of push out your yeah. your disciplines I'm sorry you're absolutely uh, and, and and I fire them out to different you know it's different people that that I send these to, um, I mean, you know, I send it generals to airmen, right? Yeah. There's, a, you know, they're all, it, it's not just relegated to, hey, these are, you know, E4 and below things, right? If I see a leader that I think is exceptional and it's just from me, like, hey, I think you're exceptional. I think you're a different breed. I want to send you this this piece of apparel. And I send it to them and, and, and they wear it and, take, and send me a picture, right? Um, and I post it and just talk about how significant of a leader they are how how well they're out being that elite professional profession of arms member yeah that's awesome that's good um now taking a look back um because you're you're pretty much on the tail end of your career um yeah. going to be retiring soon and now if you had to give anybody advice for it's like a new new dog handler coming in uh or even a new airman coming in that wants to go that that canine route was there any piece of advice you'd want to give them? Hey, so there, you know, dog handlers aren't just dog handlers. A lot of times like, oh, that's just canine or that's just a dog handler. You know, there, there's a saying, you know, everybody hashtags it a lot. Canine leads the way. Um, so if canine's leading the way, you just got to be top tier in everything you do. And your preparation um, will help you and your dog become elite. And it's not a competition. You can learn from anybody. Um, you know, everybody's got something you can learn from, whether it's the, the right way to do something or learn from the wrong way right. and not to do that. Um, but always having tools in your toolkit will make you a better handler because you, you never know what's going to happen in whatever environment you place. And if you just got one hammer and all you're doing is hammering, and you need a screwdriver. 
you're gonna have a tough time. So you gotta have those tools in your toolkit through preparation and, and, and seeking out knowledge, uh, joint uh, training um, and, and with everybody, man. I'm talking older folks, civilian departments, um, other services, seek out opportunities to go to competitions and just see what your capabilities are because those things will will um, expose you to things that you may not have available in your training environment, right? So I was big on always sending my dog teams to you know, participate in a competition. That way they can get exposed to something that I may not have the resources to expose them to. So just expanding your, your, your tool set. Don't just think, oh, we got it figured out here at Base X or at Facility X, Kennel X. Um, seek out other other forms of training and never stop growing. If you do, you're going to limit yourself as a dog handler, and there's no way that you know K9 can lead the way if you're limited, right? So keep expanding your knowledge as a dog handler and growing. Yeah, that was, it's a good advice, and I think um, everyone tries the. You can definitely tell like which handlers you get in the group of section, like which ones try to reach out and go above and beyond and seek external knowledge, and then some that. Uh, are kind of like satisfied where they're at. Yeah, I just I just want to ride around with a dog and look pretty. Yeah, exactly. Take the <laughs> yeah. take the grand pictures. Uh, yeah. No, I think it's definitely good, and I think um, it's great hearing from senior enlisted leaders that have that mentality that don't want to you know shortfall their handlers, but give them the opportunity to get out there and go. And I think yeah. same thing with other handlers, junior handlers. It doesn't help. I mean, it doesn't help you if you're not advocating for yourself. And using, you know, your, your enlisted or your leaders in your command mm-hmm. is like, Hey, bring awareness. Like they're there for, to help you out. They're not there to tell you no, yeah. even though they might think that, or they've had leadership in the past, um, yeah. that that's not the reason why they're there. They're more than willing to hear complaints, gripes or how things can get better. And if they can make it happen hundred percent. So I'm glad to hear that from, from leaders like yourself that are to open to those things. Um, but overall, I mean, I think, uh, Mr. Gallon, like we've, covered a good portion of uh that canine career i mean i really appreciate you taking your time to talk about uh the early life that you had especially you know way back in the day the early canine deployments and how that was coming from you know just being an air force handler and working with marines especially finding yourself in that role at a short notice which potentially could always happen for anybody um but overall just sharing how your you know, canine experiences also shaped up your career and your leadership ideas. Uh, definitely some principles I look forward for other handlers to hear. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate the time. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I've been in 26 years and the best part of my 26 years was the 12 that I was a dog handler. Um, not to say that the other, you know, wasn't good, but the, that 12 was a, a full of experiences and, and growth. That that helped shape, you know, you know, Chief Gallon at, at this stage in his career. Twenty six years in, you know, a, a lot of times people look at dog handlers and say, for us in the Air Force, that it's not a career progression. You can't promote into it. And for other handlers to see that you can make it to the highest enlisted rank as a dog handler, um, uh, I hope that lets them know that you know, K nine truly can lead the way. But you gotta you gotta commit to 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 being excellent as a dog handler. No, no, I agree. That's. Uh... It's awesome. We someone gets everyone usually gets fixated on the canine and that's it. But there's there's other opportunities out there, and canine is yeah. one piece of it. But uh, well, um, thank you, Mr. Gallon. I appreciate it again. Can't thank you enough. But uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Mr. Gallon and hearing his experience in canine and the military and how it shaped his enlisted career. He found himself doing the job he was trained to do on base. And in the blink of an eye, he found himself part of the first group of Air Force handlers sent to Iraq to work alongside the Marine Corps ground combat element. As an increase in guerrilla warfare tactics against coalition forces was implemented by a new insurgency resulting from the fall of the Iraqi government, an influx of military working dogs landed in Iraq in the spring of 2004 to help detect, deter, and deprive the use of weapons and explosives against coalition forces. Canine teams were used to search buildings, vehicles, and routes to locate weapons caches, IEDs, and explosive-making materials. To give you a little backstory on the Iraq War and the Battle of Fallujah, I recommend reading a small 88-page book published by the Marine Corps University. Here is a small excerpt. The Battle for Fallujah by Chief War Officer 4, Timothy McWilliams, with Nicholas Schlosser. Introduction. The First Battle for Fallujah. 
In the spring of 2003, a United States-led coalition invaded Iraq and disposed Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath regime. Over the course of the next eight years, the United States faced a persistent, multifaceted insurgency dedicated to expelling American forces from Iraq and destroying the new American-sponsored government created to replace Saddam's regime. In the course of its struggle to stabilize and defend the nascent Iraqi government, the U.S.-led coalition fought two battles in 2004 to secure the city of Fallujah. The first battle was fought in April. Launched in retaliation for the murder of American contractors by insurgents, the assault sparked a public outcry that led an anxious and still embryonic Iraqi civilian government to order an end to the battle just days after it had begun. The suspension of operations left the city in insurgent hands. Several months later, the United States launched a second battle to clear the city. This second battle, known variously as the Second Battle of Fallujah, Operation Phantom Fury, and Operation Al-Far, began in 2004 and ended with the city cleared and under coalition control by the end of December of that year. This is a study of that second battle. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and thank you for tuning in. If you guys want to support this podcast, check out the link in the description. And as always, I look forward to hearing your story. Thank you and take care.